0: This, this is the Pat O'Keefe Show. We will start in the Bronx. Uh, for those of you who are not aware already of what happened following what was the Yankees' best win of the season. A 5-4 to come-from-behind victory over the Cleveland Guardians. And bear with me, I'm doing my best. This is my first time I've hosted a show since the official name change, so I, I hope I don't come up with a Freudian slip and mention their previous nickname. Uh, but the Yankees beat the Cleveland Guardians by a score of 5-4, to four, a game in which the Yankees were down to their final strike in the bottom of the ninth inning against Cleveland's closer. And Isaiah Kiner-Falefa, who has been red hot since starting the season and starting his Yankees career 1-for-17, wrapped an RBI double to left field to tie the game at 4 in the bottom of the ninth. Now, on that play, Stephen Kwan hurt himself running into the wall. They had to pause play. The trainer came out onto the field. Now, I'm going to stop the story right there and fast forward to the ending of the actual game. Glaber Torres was next up. He was not starting today. He was the odd man out of the Yankees lineup. He comes up with his biggest hit and best moment of the season: a pinch hit RBI base hit, scoring Keiner Falefa and handing the Yankees a five to four win. Again, it was their best win of the season. It's a Yankees team that has been a very, very consistent topic of conversation. With the daily shifting of the lineup, with the inability to hit in the clutch, the inability to hit at all at certain points, Garrett Cole, Aroldis Chapman. But the bottom line is this, 15 games into the season, and I know they haven't had an overly taxing schedule, although they have had series against the Red Sox and against the Blue Jays, but 15 games into the season... The Yankees have a nine and six record right now. They're one half game behind first place Toronto. The Yankees are playing 600 baseball right now with all of the troubles that we have been discussing and been hearing about on this station since the start of the season. And even before that. So, What we should be talking about right now is their best win of the season. I mean, this is an old school Yankees win. The Yankee fan that is disgruntled and fed up with the construction of this team and their inability to get things done in the clutch, that Yankee fan used to witness one or two of these types of wins a month from the Yankee teams of Jeter and Williams and Posada and on and on and on down the line. And that is a big problem with the Yankee fan and has been. The Yankee fan continues to live in the past. It is now 2022, and their team is going on 13 years without a World Series. Wins like this do not grow on trees. But still, that is not the story. The story is what happened immediately after Isaiah Kiner-Falefa touched home plate, setting off a Yankees celebration on the field, off of Glaver Torres's walk-off RBI base hit. Because what happened after that at Yankee Stadium this afternoon, from Yankee fans, from New Yorkers, from people who live in the New York metropolitan area, was an absolute, utter disgrace. It was a disgraceful, disgusting scene at Yankee Stadium this afternoon. And the blame goes on those idiotic, knucklehead, moronic, low-life Yankee fans who were sitting in the right-field bleachers. I pray to God, many of you who were responsible for this, first of all, get caught and don't get allowed back into Yankee Stadium. And secondly, I hope you're hearing me right now because I think I share the sentiments of a lot of people who saw that play out on television this afternoon. It was an absolute disgrace. It was an embarrassment to the city. It was an embarrassment to the organization what happened at Yankee Stadium with fans throwing garbage, beer cans, many of which were full of beer, other debris on the field at the players of the Cleveland Guardians. The outfield of Yankee Stadium after a Yankees walk-off victory was covered in trash. It was covered in trash. An umpire got pelted with debris. Oscar Mercado, the right fielder for Cleveland, almost got hit in the face with a full beer can. Fortunately for him, his reflexes were quick enough that he was able to catch it in midair before it knocked him in the face. It was an unbelievably disgraceful scene at Yankee Stadium that not only completely stains what was to this date the best win of the season, it completely stains the Yankee fan. It does. And you know what? Maybe the Yankee fans involved don't care what other people think about them. Maybe they don't care what other people think about New Yorkers. But let's be honest. New York has been a big part of the sports world in any sport you can mention forever. It's the biggest media market. It's the biggest city. We've won the most championships in this town over the years, largely because of the 27 that the Yankees have won. New York is the center of the sports world, even if the teams aren't great. And there's been plenty of conversation and discussion over the recent years about the championship drought in this town. But still, New York is New York. And because it's New York, people around the country, they don't like us. They think we're entitled sports fans. They think we're arrogant sports fans. They think we're rude sports fans. They think we're spoiled sports fans. And they think we're bad sports fans. And anybody who was watching that scene after the Yankees-Guardians game today would have been absolutely right to think that. Seriously, when do you see that? What is today? Today's April 23rd, okay? We are a little more than two weeks into the Major League Baseball season. Not that the importance of a game should matter, okay? Because there's never an excuse to do what went on. Okay, we are a little more than two weeks into the Major League Baseball season. When do you see that? Tell me the last time you turned on your television and you saw a baseball game in which the field was being pelted with and covered with trash and debris and beer cans thrown at the players. The very people who you are paying hand over fist to go into that stadium to watch perform. It makes no sense. And even if it does make sense, it's a disgrace. There's no other way that I can aptly describe what happened this afternoon. It was a terrible, terrible scene. You know, for years, we hear about these bleacher creatures. And you don't want to come into the Bronx. And you guys out there in right field, you have your little chance, And you do your little roll call. And you've got t-shirts made up. And you've got all your little sayings. And listen to me. I sat out there for a couple of games, not with you, among you, okay, before political correctness took over this country and common sense prevailed. And a lot of your cute little chants were extremely offensive. And again, I hope some, if not many of you, are listening to me right now because you know what I'm talking about. But you have been glorified through the years because you happen to root for a team that has enjoyed a tremendous amount of success. And with that comes for you, fans in the right field bleachers, some sense of entitlement. Like you're above the game, like you're as much a part of the game as the players on the field. And for it to get to that point today where you throw things at them, what the hell is wrong with you? These are, first of all, these are human beings. I don't care if they're wearing a uniform, if they're wearing a bathrobe, if they're wearing a pair of jeans and an ugly button-down shirt. What would go through anybody's mind to say, I'm going to take this beer can and throw it at that human being? And then you add on the layer that you're paying hundreds of dollars to go watch these human beings do something that they are better at than anybody else in the world. And at the end of the game, for the thought to go through your tiny little brain that, hey, it's a good idea to take this garbage, throw it on this hollow ground that we supposedly revere as the greatest fans in the world, and throw it at these human beings like they're a bunch of animals. You're a bunch of animals. You people who are throwing that stuff on the field are a bunch of animals. I mean, it's really embarrassing. The more I watch it, the more angry I become. It's just unbelievable. What is the thought process? And, of course, then it becomes a mob mentality. One idiot does it, and then idiot number two chimes in, and then idiot number three is showing off his arm, and next thing you know, the entire right center field of Yankee Stadium is entirely covered in garbage. And, again, forget Yankee Stadium, okay? That's a plot of land. That's a piece of grass. You're throwing it at these guys. The umpire got hit. This umpire who's just trying to break things up and get these players off the field safely ends up getting hit with garbage. What are you kidding me? Just an absolute disgrace at Yankee Stadium this afternoon. It was a great win for the Yankees. They should have had the opportunity to celebrate that win on the field, okay? What's one of the greatest things about going to a ball game and watching your team win? Everybody hopes for the opportunity to be in the stadium to watch that dog pile in the center of the field, in the center of the diamond. After that walk off base hit, you chase down the guy who got the hit, or you chase down the guy who scored the run, and everybody piles on in the middle of the infield, and it's just like a big 30 second to 60 second celebration. It is why we go to these games to witness that excitement, to be part of that type of excitement. Well, those fans, most of whom were there for the right reasons today, wanting to watch their team come up with a huge victory, which they did. What they saw after the game was a brief celebration after Glaber Torres' game-winning hit, and then many members of the Yankees stopping that celebration to sprint out into right field with their hands over their heads asking these idiots to stop throwing garbage on the field at the players on the other team. Led by Aaron Judge, led by Giancarlo Stanton. It was unbelievable what, turned, what that afternoon turned out to be. It should have been the best afternoon of the season so far. This Yankees team has taken its lumps. It's taken its lumps from us. It's taken its lumps from other members of the media. It has certainly taken its lumps from the fans. It's been shut out three times. It's lost a series to the Baltimore Orioles, one of the worst teams in baseball. But here they are right now. They're 9-5. And, and I think they're about to pop. But none of that matters right now because all we're talking about is that disgusting scene after the game. Now, there's some other parties involved in what happened at Yankee Stadium today. First and foremost, the blame goes on the people in the right field bleachers who threw the objects onto the field. There is no question about that. But there were other steps along the way where what ended up happening could have been prevented. And there are other people involved that need to face some retribution as well. This time of year, we always love to get plenty of thoughts from Connor Rogers, who is the lead draft analyst for Bleacher Report. Also, and I'd love to give this plug, the Mets pod. He hosts that for SNY TV. Connor, I appreciate a couple of minutes on this Saturday night. I know you're busy this time of the year, but how are you?
1: Of course, Pat. Thanks for having me, man. How are you?
0: I'm doing great. Really excited for this. I mean, there's so much going on right now at the start of the baseball season and the uh and the NBA playoffs in full swing. So not that it came out of nowhere, and I know it didn't for somebody like you who's always honed in on this, but but here it is, and it is a tremendously obviously important week for both the Giants and the Jets. But let me go big picture with you first on the draft, which again begins on Thursday night, eight PM. It's in Vegas, eight PM Eastern, uh round one on Thursday. Uh, Do we have, Connor, a consensus number one pick for Thursday's draft?
1: God, we really don't. And I just, the last time I remember a year like this was when I was personally stunned that the Browns were taking Baker Baker Mayfield first overall. After for so long we heard it was Sam Darnold. I would say about 24 to 36 hours before that draft night, it flipped to Baker Mayfield and it got very real. And, And, you know, us at Bleach Report had heard Baker's party had been told that he was going to be the number one overall pick. Now, this one for me for a long time, Pat, has been Aiden Hutchinson. And even I, for the last month, had not bought into the Trayvon Walker buzz. But at some point when every single person is buying into the fact that this is real, Trent Baalke's press conference very recently, uh, if you just read through it, and usually you can't read anything in those press conferences, it did seem like this is not only up in the air, but that they just – and he, he, why not speak glowingly of Hutchinson? He was given that opportunity. He just called him a good player. So I, I still think at the end of the day, it will be him. But I think this thing is going to come right down to the wire. And I think that speaks to kind of the theme of this entire draft class, to be honest with you.
0: Who do you think should be the number one pick, Connor?
1: A, a guy that I don't even think has been in the discussion recently, and it's Iki from NC State. I think he's the best prospect in this draft. I think Jacksonville's offensive line, no, no matter how much money they just spent on it with the franchise tags, with free agency, uh, it's still not any good in my eyes. And it's old in a lot of areas and it's underachieving in a lot of areas. And a lot of the guys they have, they expect to make an impact to get hurt every year. And so I look at Iki I think he's the best player in the draft. I think he's got a long-term left tackle. I think he does have the athleticism and the ability to flip over to the right side. I think he'd be a pro bowl rookie guard. If that's the route that he goes, wherever he's asked to play, Uh, whether whoever drafts him. And I just think that until they have it right in front of Trevor Lawrence, and they are not even close, that they need to keep building on that offense. And, And I don't think that's even a pick that's under consideration at this moment.
0: Interesting. And obviously Jacksonville with the number one pick and for now settled at the quarterback position, Detroit at number two, Houston at number three, not settled Uh, Jets and Giants at four and five, I I think for this year, anyway, they're settled there. And then you have Carolina at number six, obviously not settled at quarterback. So it's a mixed bag there. Uh, Usually if you see teams trade into the top five, Connor, it is for a quarterback. And I know this isn't one of those quarterback rich classes, Uh, But that doesn't mean that somebody won't do it. Uh, Who do you think would be the team most likely to trade into the top five?
1: Oh, man, into the top five. You know what? I'll say this. I think it would be the New Orleans Saints, and I don't think it will be for a quarterback, despite the fact that they've moved on, obviously, from the Drew Brees era for quite some time now. I think they are comfortable with Jameis Winston this year. They gave Jameis Winston a nice guarantee. I think the Saints always have their eyes to move up in the draft to land a marquee player that they fall in love with. If you look at their draft history, that's how they've operated for a long time. Now, I think it would be for an offensive tackle. They lost Teron Armstead to big money for the Miami Dolphins. Uh, The Giants at number five seem like a lock to take a guy like Evan Neal if he's there, especially if the Texans take a quantum at three or the Jets take a quantum at four. The Giants are sitting in that range of five where it's going to be either Evan Neal or Charles Cross. The Saints got to be watching this board and going, oh, do we want to make a splash? Is there going to be a discount this year because it's not a spectacular year uh, where maybe we get a little bit of a discount to come up and we get one of these franchise tackles, or are we going to sit at 16 and 19 and take a Trevor Penning, a, a guy that's coming out of the FCS that is going to go in the first round but has a lot of work for a team. They think they're close, the Saints. And, and, you know, I said it right away. When they split their cards and got two picks in this draft of that trade with the Eagles, it felt like move one of two. Now, you can't always make that second move because you got to find a dance partner. But I don't think anybody's going to come up into the top five for a quarterback. I'd be floored. But I do think teams have their eyes on the top of this pass Russian offensive line market.
0: Connor Rogers, the lead NFL draft analyst for Bleacher Report, joining us here at 98.7 ESPN New York. All right, so the Giants have picks numbers five and seven. Obviously, it is a tremendous undertaking for Joe Shane uh, needing to clear all the cap space. In order to do so, he had to give up a bunch of guys who are the only bonafide NFL players on his roster. But such is his situation right now with the Giants having so many needs and having a pick at seven right after number five. Is there a chance that they trade out of one of those top two picks?
1: There is. They'll answer the phone. Now, you know, what's interesting to me is, right, and you're right, Pat, you look at five, it seems like they're, they're a team that needs blue-chip players. They need it in the trenches. They know that. Number five, it kind of seems like this layup to take the best offensive lineman available. Number seven, if they can't get out of that pick, Sauce Gardner makes a lot of sense because they're, they brought in Wink Martindale. They're a very you know, cover-one, cover-zero heavy team that leaves your corners out, isolated on themse- by themselves and man coverage. Uh, They're going to need a guy like Sauce Gardner long-term after they move on from James Bradbury's money. But if they can get out of that pick, I think they would love to if if there's the right offer. Because everybody thinks Atlanta's going to take a wide receiver at 8. And everybody thinks the Jets are going to take a wide receiver at 10. Everybody thinks Washington is going to take a wide receiver at 11. And when you look at it like that, what if you're the Philadelphia Eagles? that, That they need a wide receiver or they want one really, really badly. Uh, The Saints are another team that could come up again. I hate to keep using them, but they have the power to do that right now, and they have no fear to do it. So I think when you look at it for the Giants, they are going to get some calls. I think it's going to be teams trying to jump the wide receiver-needy teams so they can take the guy they like the most, and you're seeing the wide receiver market explode. Tyreek Hill got a ton of money. A.J. Brown, Debo Samuel, D.K. Metcalf, Terry McLaurin. They're all about to get contracts that start with a 2 on the money per year. And I mean 20 million plus per year. So there's going to be teams that go, we don't want to do that. We'd rather draft our guy in the top 10 and save the money and get the younger player.
0: Yeah, it sets the clock back a few years. Absolutely. You have in the offensive line department, you have Evan Neal from Alabama. Uh, You have Ekem Oconwu from NC State, who you mentioned. You have Charles Cross from Mississippi State. If the Giants come away with one of those three guys at number five, would you consider that a win?
1: Yeah, it's a massive win. These are foundational pieces, you know, when you look at it for me, and I think they view it the same way. I just think when they look at this draft, they like the strides that Andrew Thomas has taken, but everybody knows the offensive line is only as strong as your weakest link, and the Giants have had a lot of weak links on that offensive line over the years. I think considering them having no money, they did a good job in free agency getting stopgap serviceable players, whether it's Feliciano, Glowinski. They got guys that can come in and at least hold the fort and not get the quarterback killed and completely shut down the offense. But to me, they still have a glaring hole on the right side of that offensive line. And I think they like the experience probably of Evan Neal playing right tackle in 2020. Charles Cross has been vocal that he's prepared to play on the right side after being a two-year starter at left tackle in college. Uh, And the Giants are one of those teams that have circled him with a pen uh, to maybe take him and then move him over to the right side. So whoever they draft I think Andrew Thomas is going to stay on the left side. One of the top tackles is going to stay on the right side. I think those guys are going to be fine there, and it's going to be a new era for the Giants that is slow and steady. It's not spend big dollars here, draft flashy guys here. It's going to be brick by brick, lay the ground floor in the trenches. It might not be a great year for the Giants in terms of wins in the win, win and loss column, but they're going to have foundational pieces for the next couple of years, and those guys are going to be, uh, be big-time picks in this draft.
0: What can, Connor, what can the Giant fan expect from Joe Shane? What do we know about his track record? Obviously, he was part of building that impressive foundation in Buffalo, but he wasn't the guy making the decisions. What can we expect from Joe Shane as he prepares for his first NFL draft as the guy?
1: Man, they just know. He's a guy that understands that when you're set on offensive line or defensive line, you're still not set. You can keep drafting that over and over again. Now, when you say that, you, know, you just want to dominate in the trenches in your division. And when you look at how the division is set up, the Eagles had the best rush attack in the NFL last year. The Cowboys traditionally have had a good offensive line for a long time. Even Washington, their offensive line, while well, it's been in flux recently, they've had a decent offensive line. He knows to compete, to evaluate everything else in the offense, you have to have that. He knows he took a job. That they're so far away in that area. And that's why you saw him be so proactive even in a free agency period that he didn't have a lot of money. So that's how Joe Shane is going to build it. Now, what I will say, a little bit outside the box that we need to evaluate here, Pat, he's the GM of a team that, yes, he knows Brian Dable. He knows the offense very well. And all of that is going to come together very closely to how it came together in Buffalo. The defensive side of the ball is totally different. I mean, what they do up in Buffalo, that zone scheme is wildly different than Wink Martindale's scheme that's attacking, blitzing, man coverage on the outside. So when you look at it like that, we're used to Joe Shane constantly drafting in the trenches, and he will, but they also need to take... They're going to take corner uh, very seriously in terms of how high level of a talent that needs to be on the roster and the type of players they have to have. And there's one staring them in the face this year, at Sauce Gardner, even Derek Stingley, if you, could, if you believe in him staying healthy at the next level as well. So I'm curious to see how eager they are to trade that seventh pick, or if they feel like those guys are just too good for the system they run.
0: Let's switch gears. And we're speaking with Connor Rogers, the lead draft analyst for bleacher report NFL draft. First round is on Thursday from Las Vegas, 8 PM Eastern on both ESPN and ABC. Um, Let's talk about the Jets, Connor, and it's the third draft now for Joe Douglas. They've had a pretty aggressive offseason, obviously, in comparison to the Giants, they definitely have, but they're further along in their process than the Giants are, who are frankly starting from square one. Uh, Jets have two picks in the top 10, including number four. Uh, Who or what should they be targeting at number four?
1: They need a pass rusher. It's really simple. They need a pass rusher. Um, they need somebody that can come in across and Carl Lawson, who's coming back from the ruptured Achilles, and get after it off the edge. They, you hire Robert Sala. You know what you're getting attacking front for. They pin their ears back and go. They get upfield after the quarterback. The defense plays predominantly a cover three scheme. They basically need guys, Pat, that can get after the quarterback and make his life extremely uncomfortable. And things got really grim quickly last year. They like Quinn Williams and Sheldon Rankins and John Franklin Myers on their interior defensive line group uh jfm is a guy that can kind of kick outside and inside but once carl lawson went down and then they lost bryce huff to a back injury they had no edge pass rush and it kind of shut down the defense it's like taking the engine out of a car nothing else works with that so they know that going into this draft at number four there's players they love they won't get a shot at hutchinson i think they like kayvon thibodeau a lot i think they'd like to see him there I think they like Jermaine Johnson from Florida State a lot as well. I think they'd like to see him there if everybody else is gone, although they have probably value Jermaine Johnson closer to the 10th overall pick in this draft, where they're going to look at wide receiver. They've shown those cards already, right? They've been involved in wide receiver trades. They've come up short. This Debo Samuel thing is going to take off like a rocket this week. I think that it's going to get real. I think the Niners have to make a decision on that, and the Jets are going to be right in the middle of it. But they're not going to throw the 4th or the 10th pick in, in that trade they got to pay a guy $25 million. So depending what happens with the wide receiver trade market, that's going to have a ripple effect on what the Jets do with the 10th overall pick as well.
0: You know, earlier in the offseason, obviously Tyreek Hill was traded to the Dolphins, and it came down to the Dolphins and the Jets. And now you're hearing with the Debo Samuel trade demand, the Jets prominently mentioned. So, again, it's been a pretty aggressive offseason for Joe Douglas. The Jets now are one of those franchises – in which their name always seems to be mentioned when a big-time talent comes available on the open market. Um, Do you like that for this franchise? Do you like that Joe Douglas has put them in that position?
1: I do now. If you said this two years ago, I think it would have been just not on the right timeline. I think now you have to. you guys got to start winning football games. I can't emphasize this enough. As much as Joe Douglas gets a lot of credit, deservingly so, of stockpiling picks, trading away the old core, getting really, really good return on poor previous investments. Uh, and uh, obviously, he's even had a couple of huge trades that he's gotten way too much back. I don't know what teams are thinking when you look at the Jamal Adams and <laughs> Sam Darnold trades. But when it comes down to it, Pat, it's not what you get in return on paper, draft picks, cap space, all that stuff's great. It's what you do with it. What did those become? Now, credit to him. A piece of the Jamal Adams trade has become Elijah Vera Tucker, one of the better young guards in the NFL right now. But you got to get impact players, and they know that. And they know that they they feel good where they are on the offensive line. Like I said, they're going to sink a serious asset into edge pass rush in this draft. But they know to evaluate Zach Wilson, it's got to be better around him with playmakers. they got their two tight ends in free agency. Now they feel like they can run 12 personnel with the two tight ends on the field, run the ball, get the middle of the field passing attack going. But who is the guy – on offense that scares the defensive coordinators, keeps them up all night, draws double teams, draws bracket coverage. Uh, The guy that you just want to put the ball in his hands and say, go win us the football game. I love Elijah Moore. That's just too much on him. I like Corey Davis more than most. He's a nice number two wide receiver. They don't have that guy. They haven't had that guy since Brandon Marshall in 2015, one monster year. They're aware that that's what wins football games in this Playmaker League, and they're all in on finding that guy.
0: And Connor, I like Elijah Moore a lot, too, but I think he looks really good playing alongside that hypothetical guy you just mentioned.
1: Bingo, yes.
0: Uh, A couple more on the draft and we're with Connor Rogers, who's getting a set for the NFL draft round one on Thursday. It's in Vegas this year, which should be fun. Uh, Big picture now. And and I always like to ask you about the quarterbacks and it's not a quarterback rich class. It doesn't look like a quarterback's going to be taken number one overall, which is obviously very rare over the last 10 or 15 years. Uh, Who do you think is the first quarterback picked?
1: I think it's going to be Kenny Pickett. And that might surprise people. I know a lot of people think it's going to be Malik Willis. I think it's going to be Kenny Pickett. I think, you look at the Panthers. I think that's who they're in on. I think they're looking for a high-floor guy that can come in and play. I understand there's limited upside there. I don't have a quarterback in the first round in terms of grades. There's going to be two that go. Malik Willis and Kenny Pickett are going to be are going to be the first-round quarterbacks in this class. Maybe a third guy sneaks in. Whether it's Desmond Ritter, uh, I don't think Sam Howell or Matt Corral will sneak into the first round. Maybe Ritter does, but I think the Panthers are going to try to get out of six still take a quarterback. But I'd be surprised if they can get out of that pick. I think it's going to be really, really tough. They might just sit tight, not care about the criticism, and take the guy anyway. And then the team to watch that everybody knows about is the Steelers. They love Malik Willis. They've loved him since the senior bowl. Uh, They've been trying to already form a bond there. They view him as a guy that – it all comes together, right, Pat? You can see at the plan. They signed Mitch Trubisky. He could be that stopgap player. He could start this year, let Malik get some seasoning, which would really help coming out of Liberty – Uh, develop that big-time arm and mobility, and then you have your franchise starter for hopefully a long time. Now, I don't think Malik Willis, they're comfortable hoping he slides to 20. I could see them calling the Jets at 10, uh, teams in that area, and seeing if there's any interest to move back. We'll see if those teams are actually interested in doing so for the right price. Uh, That's where the two top quarterbacks in this class are slated, though, right now.
0: Connor, before I let you go, I've had you on for years and between your uh, passion for the New York Mets and now you've turned that into your own uh, host of the Mets pod on SNY TV and other ventures. uh, I've asked you about the Mets for years when times were not so good. So things are very good right now. 11 and four, most wins in Major League Baseball uh, under Buck Showalter. When you look at this team, and, and it's amazing because everybody seems to be hot. Pitchers, hitters, right out of the gate. What are you most enthusiastic about 15 games in for the Mets?
1: I think that the starting rotation is showing you that they have no fear and they're not going to need to ride on Jacob DeGrom as much as this team has needed to in the past. And I don't, Maybe that shouldn't be a surprise. Maybe some people are surprised. You go out and get Max Scherzer. He's the ultimate pro's pro. I think a lot of people, and I get it, I don't watch Oakland A's baseball either, did not realize how good Chris Bassett is, how much of a pro he is with a variety of pitches, throws different speeds. He's a five-pitch pitcher with control. It's, it's pretty rare in today's game of power arms. And they got young guys that are hungry to go out there, and they're, they're, they're built the right way to pitch in New York, whether it's McGill. Even Peterson is surprising a lot of people right now. Cookie Carrasco's healthy. I'm not saying these guys are going to pitch sub-2 ERA all year, Pat. That's just not reasonable. It's not, uh, but to, for them to hold the fort like this right now until DeGrom is back, that's something to be really, really excited about. We knew this team could play small ball. We knew they got more athletic in the lineup. We knew the bullpen's gonna make us pull our hair out all the time, every single night, especially on these West Coast swings where we're staying up till one AM to watch them hopefully win it in extra innings. But this starting rotation has answered a lot of questions early on, and I'm just trying to enjoy it right now.
0: Connor, listen, I know after you gained national attention with your appearance in your denim jacket on Good Morning <laughs> Football, you probably had a lot of options on this Saturday night. So I really appreciate you giving me some time.
1: No, it's always great to talk to you, Pat. I appreciate you having me on, and let's do it again soon.
0: All right, thanks a lot. Great stuff. It's Connor Rogers, the lead draft analyst of Bleacher Report, also hosts the Mets pod on SNY TV, getting a set for the NFL draft. You know, you hope that with all of the technology – and video components inside these stadiums, specifically Yankee Stadium, and all of the cameras for security purposes and television purposes, you hope that the Yankees can really sink their teeth into what happened in right field and try to identify as many fans as possible who threw objects onto the field because those fans should not be allowed back into Yankee Stadium, ever. That's a lifetime ban. It is. You cannot go to a game with the reasonable expectation that, hey, you know what? If I don't like the way things are going this afternoon or I don't like the way somebody is acting, I'm going to throw a beer can at them. You can't do that, okay? Because the entire structure then of professional sports, this thing that we love so much, otherwise we wouldn't be sharing this space together right now, the entire structure of professional sports breaks down, okay? You have the athletes or the performers And those are the people who we, as the fans and the paying customers, pay good money to go see perform. They're also human beings. So there is absolutely no excuse to ever throw anything at them. Just like there's never an excuse to throw anything at a human being who's not a professional athlete. It's not just you can't throw things at them because they're professional baseball players. They're human beings. You want to yell at them? You want to tell Miles Straw, hey, you suck. You want to do that? That's fine. All right? I wouldn't teach my son to do that, but you can do that. That is within your right as a paying customer and a ticket holder. Okay? Fans have been doing it for years. It's part of the experience. If you're a player, do you love it? No. Who would love that? All right? And I know they say some guys thrive off of that type of stuff, like Trey Young, and, and he might in the NBA with the Atlanta Hawks. But for the most part, players don't love it. But no situation is perfect. Perfect. A Major League Baseball situation is as close to perfect as possible when you compare it to other situations of people in life. You get to play baseball for a living. You get to travel first class. You get to travel around the country. You're always in shape. You're always working out. And oh yeah, you get paid millions of dollars to do all of that. You take charter flights. You stay in the best hotels. You eat at the best restaurants. It's a really good deal. It's a wonderful lifestyle. But nothing can be that perfect, all right? So let's sit down and list the pros and cons of being a professional baseball player. Well, occasionally when I go into another city, whether it's New York or Boston or Philadelphia or wherever, the opposing team's fans are going to yell derogatory things at me. They're going to boo me. They're going to try to distract me and take me off my game. That is part of the deal, all right? When that happens, you cannot climb a fence and try to get into the stands at one specific fan just because you don't like what he's saying. I'm sorry. And this might be an unpopular opinion with a lot of people, but I also know for a fact that this is not an unpopular opinion with a lot of people. Athletes today are too sensitive. They are. And again, I want to make note that I'm bringing this up an hour and eight minutes into this program, okay? Okay. Let it be said that the entire first hour of this program, except for the 20 minutes of NFL draft conversation, which was important for a different reason, other than that, the entire first hour was spent castigating the fans for their behavior. Okay, but now we move on to other aspects of what happened at Yankee Stadium today. And the center fielder for the Cleveland Guardians, Miles Straw, has some culpability in what happened. He needs to be punished. He needs to be suspended because what he did happened before the garbage was thrown on the field, okay? What he did was reacting to words, to verbal words, specifically a fan cheering the fact that his teammate injured himself running into a wall. And again, the fan doing that, an idiot, a moron, okay? I think we can all agree on that. It doesn't give this guy the right to try to climb the fence in center field and get at that fan and teach him a lesson. Are you kidding me? You can't do that. So he needs to be suspended. The Guardians are going to have to try to make do without Miles Straw's two RBIs in 54 at-bats so far this season. I hope they can summon the power to do that. Afterwards, Straw was asked about what happened at Yankee Stadium. Let's hear what he had to say. No, they like I said, they chirp, which is totally fine. You know, I have the fun little group up in center, which it's every t- every game here. Which they're fine; they can you know flick me off, they can say stuff about my family. I really don't care about that. But when someone's hurt, you don't you don't prey on that. You don't you know you don't just keep your mouth shut and let
1: just let them recover. And you know if they wanna if they wanna if they wanna chirp chirp.
0: I mean, boo me and do whatever you want. I really don't care. But non that's nonsense for someone to be hurt and you to to say things like that. It is nonsense. I completely agree with the last part of what he said. It's nonsense. I don't know anybody who wouldn't agree, all right? That fan should be ashamed of himself or herself for doing that. That being said, this guy can't try to climb the fence and get at that fan. That is not how it works, all right? You can't try to get into the stands because somebody hurt the feelings of your teammate, And it's part of a larger picture in which athletes are too sensitive. Fans at Madison Square Garden boo Julius Randle. He gives them the finger running down court. And then he tells them to shut the you-know-what up after the game. I'm sorry. Too sensitive. Russell Westbrook complaining that fans in Los Angeles are calling him Russell West Brick. And it's defaming his family name of Westbrook. First of all, Westbrook is pretty funny because that aptly describes the season that he had. Too sensitive. I mean, Will Smith at the Oscars, too sensitive. Chris Rock's telling a joke. He's up there to tell jokes. Too sensitive. You can't walk on stage and slap the guy in the face. He was punished. He can't go to the Oscars for 10 years. Too sensitive. It's part of the deal. I'm sorry. And maybe, like, somebody who is on the other side of this, you know, a professional athlete, an entertainer like Will Smith, may, I, I'm sure they'll disagree with what I'm saying right now. I can't put myself in their shoes. I can't put myself in the shoes of a professional athlete. I obviously can't put myself in the shoes of a actor like Will Smith or anybody like that, all right? But what I do know, as a lifetime observer of sports and the – athlete-fan relationship, and somebody who has been in this business for more than 20 years, what I do know is that dealing with criticism, dealing with harsh words, dealing with boos, dealing with stuff like that comes with the territory when you're a professional athlete. It stinks. I don't know anybody who would not say that it stinks. But it's part of doing, it's the cost of doing business. All right? If you're a professional athlete, what are the pros? We went through them. You're paid well beyond what you had ever dreamed of. The lifestyle is fantastic. The cons are you got to put up with idiots. Because a lot of those idiots are the people that are paying good money for your salary. And I'll use the example, I'm sure that the guy who is cheering Stephen Kwan getting hurt, he was probably lubed up. He had been outside. It was a beautiful day in the Bronx. Sitting in the bleachers for three hours. Your team comes from behind. They just tied the game in the bottom of the ninth inning when they were one strike away from victory. You're thrilled right now. You're on top of the world. And you've probably been kicking back a few beers for about two and a half and three hours. So you're going to come at me and say, well, then they shouldn't sell beer at the ballpark. Okay, yeah, I'm sure the players would love that. Because where do you think all that money, not all that money, a large portion of their money that pays their salaries comes from the fact that fans are paying fourteen dollars for a beer that you can get for two dollars in your corner bodega? All right, let's go to the phones. One eight hundred nine one nine three seven seven six. I think Buddha in the Bronx wants to chime in. So let's welcome him to the show. Buddha, it's Pat O'Keefe on ninety eight point seven ESPN New York. How you doing?
2: Hey, what's going on, Pat? What's going on, baby? What's up, man? How are you? Good, good. Always good to talk to you, man. I got a lot of love for you, man. Very insightful. Very very knowledgeable guy, man.
0: I appreciate your calls, and thanks a lot, Buddha.
2: Listen, man, like, Pat, this is a bad situation, and you know I'm talking about what happened at the stadium. This is a bad situation on many levels. I mean, you saw this week what happened with Mike Tyson. Um, you have brought up Westbrook, and the Westbrook thing, obviously, to me, I'm not going crazy over nothing like that if I'm a, if I'm a player. But you got to remember that last year, some dude threw popcorn on Westbrook when he was coming out the game, so maybe he's a little uber sensitive about that. But listen, you got guys coming to these stadiums right now. You know, just think about that. Pat, would you pay fifty dollars for parking? And twelve dollars for a can of beer, and then throw the can of beer on the player. Like
0: <laughs> I, a full can of beer. I wouldn't pay a can, I would. I wouldn't throw a can of beer if I if I spend two dollars on it.
2: <laughs> I mean, come on, man. This, this is far from the days when my father used to pack them six packs of Ballantine Ale and go to the stadium. You know, the, the prices that they that they ask you, the bag check everything. You know, and I'm, I'm I'm cracking jokes, but it's really not funny. There's a sentiment, and you spoke about it earlier. There's a sentiment where not only do we boo the opposing player, and you saw it mostly in the NBA, but now it's spreading to other sports. Where I hate these players. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Not me. I'm saying like fans. Like I look at this guy, and he's making good money. You know, I'm not necessarily poor, but I'm not making that kind of money, and and I resent him. And not only do I want to boo against him. But like I want to, I want to let him know that you know what I think of him as a person. You know, some of that stuff is horrible. The stuff that they're saying is stands, your Pat. Listen, I used to go to three or four Jets games a year, and I'm not going to lie, I didn't pay for the tickets. I have a good friend of mine; he's a fireman, and I have another buddy. Like they all grew up. We all grew up in the same neighborhood. I got one friend who's a fireman, one friend who's a police officer. So they, you know, they would get tickets a lot of times, and. We went as a group one time. This was pre-pandemic. We went as a group, maybe five or six of us, you know, girlfriends, wives there. So, you know, they're at the concession stand, and somebody pours a beer on my man's wife. Mm. I mean, when we're all Jets fans. We're, it's not like we were wearing opposing uniforms or anything like that. We're all Jets fans. And, I mean, you know, a mini melee is you know, God, God Bless the fact that I was with a couple of police officers. So, you know, when the security came and everything like that, you know, they were able to flip out the badges and things like that. But, I mean, people are going nuts right now, man. You know, and wherever your, you know, feelings are about this country or about, you know, a, a, the pandemic and, you know, the fact that you weren't able to do certain things that you were used to be able to do, that doesn't give you the right to come into a stadium. And number one, take it out on a player who has nothing to do with the political stuff that's going on in this country. But second of all, it's just, like, people are there with their children, man. You understand what I'm saying? Like, imagine you bring your your, your five- or six-year-old to a stadium, and you got the wrong jersey on or the wrong hat on. And you don't need
0: to be doing the things that people are doing, man. Like, come on, man. Like, where's the adults in the room, bro? Buddha, that's well put. And I agree with a lot of what you said. And thanks for the call here. Here's here's what and you said something that I think is at the root of a lot of this behavior. And that is the pandemic. And that is what we as a society have gone through over the last two years. Not only the pandemic, but also the political climate of this country. People it was already kind of going down a road. Right. The political climate of this country, uh, you know, it's as divided as it has ever been. And that, for lack of a better word, makes people angry. And then you add into that this whole pandemic. We were shuttered in our homes for a year and a half. I didn't go into my office for a year and a half. Neither did millions of other people. Society stopped for a long period of time. And we were angry about that. And then people were told they had to wear masks and people were angry about that. And then people were not wearing masks and other people were angry about that. And everybody's just angry about everything. And I just think right now, people are on edge a lot more than they used to be. Fans, athletes, everybody. Everybody is just more tense, more angry. And unfortunately, I don't see that stopping. And then you go back to a ball game. And you add in the elements of alcohol, all right? And I will admit, okay, I enjoy a couple of cold ones after a long day of work, all right? So I understand what it's like to go to a ball game, have a couple of beers, sit out and relax. But I also have seen it where it goes too far. And the NFL, I think, is the most extreme example because that's like an entire... 24-hour drink fest for a lot of people. It's like a national holiday every week, a home game Sunday. It happens eight times a year. You're out at MetLife Stadium at 8 o'clock in the morning. You're drinking all the way until the 1 o'clock kickoff. You're drinking through halftime. Then they cut off beer sales in the second half. And then after the game, you get back out there and you start drinking again. By the end of the day, you've been drinking for 12 hours, okay? And that just leads to a lot of hostility and a lot of bad decisions. And on a smaller scale in terms of drinking, because I don't know that anybody in the Rayfield beaches was drinking for 12 hours today, but that contributed to what we saw today. And that is unacceptable. And then you add into that the fact that people are just angry about what this world and what this country has turned into over the last two years. People are a lot angrier than they used to be. And stuff like that contributes to the scene, the disgusting scene, That we saw today at Yankee Stadium. An awful day. An awful day for the Yankee fan. Kevin Durant is 12 points. I mean, he's clearly the focal point of Boston's defense. I understand Boston has the best defense in the NBA. If you're a guy who is considered by many to be a top 15 player in the history of the NBA, and and people think Kevin Durant is is the greatest scoring forward of all time. I mean, these are phrases that have been used to describe Kevin Durant. Then you've got to be able to get around Marcus Smart. I know Marcus Smart's the defensive player of the year, but he's also about six inches shorter than you are. And Kevin Durant has 12 points right now. And he's only attempted nine shots. And Kyrie Irving has 14 points right now. He's 0 for 6 from downtown. Thank God for Bruce Brown. Bruce Brown has 23 points, helping to keep the Nets in it. Now, a lot of Bruce Brown's production is because of all of the attention being paid to Durant and Irving. So that's part of it, and and, and that's a positive that Durant and Irving are bringing to this game, especially Durant. Durant's the focal point of what Boston is doing on defense. He has been since Game 1, and it's worked so far. Durant has not had a good game yet in this series. But he's a good fourth quarter away in this game, from turning this entire series up onside his head because right now the way I've been talking for the last 45 minutes is that it's inevitable that Boston's going to go up three games to nothing and if that happens I don't expect Brooklyn to put up much of a fight at all in game number four we're talking about Ben Simmons he met with the media yesterday on the off day again Ben Simmons hasn't played since Father's Day which was game seven of the second-round series in the playoffs last year between the Hawks and the 76ers when he famously passed up a wide-open dunk in the closing minutes. And the main reason for that is the fact that he was shooting 34% from the foul line in the playoffs last season. And he was just afraid to shoot down the stretch of those games. So they lose that game. Doc Rivers is asked if he thinks... 76ers can win a championship with Ben Simmons as their point guard. And Doc, in a moment of honesty that he probably wants back, or maybe he doesn't anymore, Doc said, ah, I don't know. And then from that point on, Ben Simmons never played for Philadelphia again. And from that point on, Ben Simmons has never played for anyone. He was traded to the Nets on February 10th. He still hasn't played. He reportedly has been working his way back from a back injury in recent weeks. But he's targeting Monday's game four to finally make his Brooklyn Nets debut. And yesterday he said he wants to play.
2: Body wise, it's you know, once my body's ready, I want to be able to, you know, help his team win. You know, that's what I'm here for. So, I mean, it is what it is. I gotta get on the floor and help this team win. You know, I've been traded to Brooklyn Nets, and that's what they need me to do. So that's my focus right now.
0: You know, it's it's hard to take him seriously, though. You know, he's he's standing in front of the Nets bench as he's has been all night. I'm looking at him right now. He's wearing bright orange pants. Uh, He's got a purple jacket with blue sleeves. I'm sure the outfit costs a fortune. I'm sure it costs a fortune. Uh, He looks great. You know, clearly he's somebody who wants to be noticed standing on the bench at Barclays center, but it's, it's tough to, Take him seriously. Like, why aren't you playing? Why haven't you played since Father's Day? Father's Day, by the way, for those of you, I'm a father, so I guess I take it for granted. Father's Day is usually in mid-June. It's like the 19th or the 20th. I think June 20th was the last time he played when they lost game seven. So is he even, you, you have to ask, is it frustrating not to play?
2: Yeah, it's so frustrating. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Especially when you you know you're not out there, you're not able to contribute. Um, but I'm doing what I can, you know, being vocal on the bench, talking to my guys, helping where I can. So little things like that. I'm just doing what I can at this moment. And then obviously, you know, when it's individual workouts, doing what I can on that side to get back on the floor.
0: It's a moot point now because he's not playing. But again, th- these are from yesterday, the day off media availability with Ben Simmons and with Steve Nash before Game Three, which is going on right now. He's not playing in Game 3. He didn't suit up for Game 3, but it's still interesting to hear what Steve Nash had to say when asked about Simmons because we've heard he's targeting Game 4. Well, why not Game 3?
2: Is there any chance that Ben plays tomorrow? Uh, Ben tomorrow? I don't think so. No, I don't think so, no. (laughs) He described himself as game-to-game, do you think? I thought he said he planned to work tomorrow, too. Is Game 4 reasonable to think that... that that's why I didn't let tomorrow, because I think he's supposed to have a
0: workout tomorrow not,
2: not play. But uh, really, I don't know what to tell you. He's, we got to just be patient and see when he feels right and ready to play.
0: All right. Well, uh, Jacob, I'm going to ask you to play that again cause, and keep my mic open this time because I love Steve Nash's answers. So Again, this is yesterday before game three, uh, Nets trailing two games to nothing. And, and in case, you know, you haven't been listening in the last 15 minutes when I mentioned it 30 times, uh, Ben Simmons hasn't played since the Nets traded for him on February 10th. Go ahead, Jacob. Is there
2: any chance that Ben plays tomorrow? Uh, Ben tomorrow? I don't think so. No, I don't think so.
1: (laughs) (laughs) He described himself. He's laughing.
0: Ben tomorrow?
1: No. (laughs) Don't
0: don't be preposterous. Ben Simmons tomorrow? No, our our season's only on the line. That's why I I didn't let tomorrow. All right. Thanks, Jacob. (laughs) His reaction is (laughs) great. I don't know if I've ever heard an NBA coach laugh when asked if an all-star player is playing on a specific day. You know, hey, is Kobe Bryant suiting up tomorrow? <laughs> Kobe Bryant suiting up tomorrow? <laughs> hey, is Michael Jordan going to play tomorrow? Michael Jordan play tomorrow? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I mean, it's it's laughable. Um, Nets got within three. Boston scored the final six points of the fourth quarter. It's 81 to 72 heading to the fourth. Nets are 12 minutes away from falling behind three games to nothing. one 800 let us go to Sam in Rockland. What's up, Sam?
2: Um, I was wondering with this new NBA, people were thinking the Big Three would win in any team. I think the new ways, like a Big Five, like a Big Seven, like just well rounded players like the Celtics are proving, even like a team like, you know, when healthy, Toronto is pretty solid. And then like, you know, Memphis, all these new teams coming up and about. The Timberwolves are doing well now. You know, the young teams, I think young players are more agile and developing for the new way the league should be versus you know, getting a big three old players like the Lakers did and then them just busting out, which is clearly proving the point with, you know, Kyrie or Kyrie only playing half the seasons and stuff like that. So why not just have a new way of developing teams, young players who are youthful and, you know, can prove something every, every night. That's it.
0: You know, that's a good call, Sam, and it's a good point, and thanks for the call. You know, here's the thing. What Memphis has done is incredibly impressive. I mean, Memphis has a roster. Who's going to Memphis as a free agent? You know, they have a roster of virtually all homegrown talent. From John Morant, who was the number two pick in the draft, and Jaron Jackson Jr., who was the number four pick in the draft. Desmond Bain, who was a borderline all-star this year, was the 30th pick in the draft two years ago. He was the final pick in the first round of the draft. He's a 20-point-per-game scorer. Dylan Brooks, they got him in the second round. Brandon Clark... And then, um, you know, some shrewd trades. Steven Adams, they bring him in as their starting center. Zaire Williams, they drafted him in the lottery this year. When you're a team like Memphis, you have to draft extraordinarily well because they're not going to be a free agent destination. And they got a little lucky in the lottery, sure. You know, the year that John Morant was in the draft with R.J. Barrett and Zion Williamson, They got the number two pick. That very easily could have been the Knicks, and John Moran could be doing what he's doing in New York right now. It didn't work out for the Knicks. It worked out for Memphis. It also worked out that they didn't get the number one pick because they probably would have picked Zion Williamson because anybody would have picked Zion Williamson. But here's the thing, and Memphis is just one example. Minnesota is another example that our last caller gave with... Anthony Edwards, again, lottery luck. They won the lottery. He looks like the real deal in his second year as the former number one overall pick. They have Carl Anthony Towns, another former number one overall pick who certainly hasn't distinguished himself in the playoffs so far. D'Angelo Russell, a former number two overall pick. So they have a collection of star, above average type players as well. Here's the thing, they haven't won yet. All right? So you can't say... The era of the big three is over, and now is the time to do things like the Celtics are doing, you know, a collection of really good players. Do things the way the Grizzlies are doing, a collection of really good players. Or the Timberwolves, a collection of really good players. Because all those teams have done has gone to the playoffs. You know, Memphis hasn't won a playoff series yet. Minnesota hasn't won a playoff series yet. Boston, they've won playoff series, but they haven't even been to the NBA Finals since 2010 when by the way they were led by a big three of kevin garnett and ray allen and paul pierce so you can't say like the era of the big three i do think it's starting to shift away from that way of constructing a team but it still works if you have the right guys i mean why did the big three work in miami because you had lebron james that was the number one reason The big three worked in Miami because you had LeBron James in the prime of his career. The number two reason it worked in Miami is you had Dwayne Wade in the prime of his career. Those are the two biggest reasons why it worked. You have to have the right guys. Look, two years ago, and people try to knock the Lakers for their 2020 championship in the bubble. It's a legitimate championship. I don't think there's any question about that. They had a big two. They had LeBron James and they had Anthony Davis. And they peaked at the right time in the postseason, especially Anthony Davis. You know, LeBron's always going to do what LeBron does in those situations. Anthony Davis took his game to another level. But that was a team constructed around two stars, neither of which were homegrown. And that's an interesting—somebody told me this. I shouldn't say somebody told me this. I read this somewhere. I read this in an ESPN article recently by one of their great analysts. It was either Kevin Arnovitz or Kevin Pelton, one of the really good uh, analytics guys who uh, writes and covers the NBA for ESPN.com. And over the last, let's say, 30 years, and I have to go back and look at this, but over the last, like, 30 years, there is only one team that won an NBA championship in which neither of its top two players was a homegrown star. That's only happened once. And it was the 2020 Lakers. Obviously, LeBron James not a homegrown Laker. Anthony Davis not a homegrown Laker. But you go back at, you know, NBA champions of recent vintage: the Warriors, Stephen Curry. The I guess the Toronto Raptors are a tricky one. Who was their second best player? Obviously, Kawhi was their best. Was their second best? I guess we could fudge it a little bit and say Pascal Siakam was their second best player. Yeah, I I would say Kyle Lowry was their second best player, but for. Purposes of this argument, you'd have to say that Siakam was their second best because Lowry wasn't a homegrown Raptor. It felt like he was because he was there for forever, but he bounced around a little bit before he came to Toronto. So he's not a homegrown Raptor. But then you go, you know, the Warriors, Steph Curry, and Clay Thompson, obviously. And then when Durant came, he wasn't homegrown, but Curry was still homegrown. The Heat, LeBron wasn't homegrown, but Dwayne Wade was homegrown. And who beat the Heat before then? It was, um, Dallas, Dirk Nowitzki, who beat the Heat at the end of their run? It was San Antonio. Their homegrown stars were Kawhi Leonard and Tim Duncan. Then you go back, the Lakers, Kobe Bryant, the Celtics, Paul Pierce, the first Heat, Dwayne Wade, the Spurs obviously always had Tim Duncan in the mix, the Shaq, Kobe Lakers, Kobe Bryant. So, you know, you go back, Hakeem, Michael Jordan. Now we're into the 90s. Um The Pistons, Isaiah Thomas, you can keep going back and back. Magic Johnson, we're into the 80s now. So yeah, the only one in the last 30 to 40 years, the only NBA champion in which neither of its top two players was a homegrown star was the 2020 Lakers with LeBron James and Anthony Davis. Boston Celtics, their top two players, both homegrown stars. Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown picked number three in the draft one year apart. The Brooklyn Nets, their top two players, obviously neither of them a homegrown star. This this is the Pat O'Keefe Show.